0: Welcome to Sojourner Truth, thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. As the nation prepares to celebrate its independence from the UK, on our weekly roundtable, our panelists weigh in on the latest Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court blow to voting rights in the United States. This is Nancy Pelosi sets up a House panel to investigate the January 6th insurrection given the attacks on voting rights and the denial of many in the GOP about what happened on January 6th? Is the insurrection continuing uh, in state legislatures, in the Republican Party, in Congress, and also in the courts? Also today, charges against uh, Trump business and associates. Where is this going and what could it all mean? and on the international front 100 years of china's communist party is it on its way to becoming the world's preeminent power and what are the implications of that the context of the national holidays in the u.s and also the july 1st national holiday in canada and the latest blow uh to cuba Um, with the United States again um, withholding its support for ending sanctions. Our panelists are Laura Carlson, Jackie Goldberg,
1: I'm Max Pringle with these headlines. America's employers added 850,000 jobs in June, well above the average of the previous three months, and a sign that companies may be having an easier time finding enough workers to fill jobs. Today's report from the Labor Department was the latest evidence that the reopening of the economy is showing a strong recovery from the pandemic recession. Restaurant traffic across the country is nearly back to pre-pandemic levels, and more people are shopping, traveling, and attending sports and entertainment events. The number of people flying each day has regained about 80% of its pre-COVID-19 levels, and Americans' confidence in the economy outlook has nearly fully recovered. A result is that many businesses are desperate to hire and have posted a record number of jobs. With competition for workers intensifying, especially at restaurants and tourist and entertainment venues, employers are offering higher pay, along with signing and retention bonuses and more flexible hours. The last U.S. and NATO forces remaining in Afghanistan have left Bagram Air Base 20 years after going into the country to oust the Taliban and its al-Qaeda allies following the September 11th attacks. The base has been officially handed over to Afghan security forces. Feature Story News' Laura Macon-Isherwood reports.
2: Just months ago, 9,500 military personnel from 36 NATO nations could be found working in Afghanistan. But now, Bagram Air Base, that served as a launch point for coalition airstrikes against the Taliban and al-Qaeda, is no longer home to U.S. troops. The last remaining few have handed the airfield over to the Afghan National Security Forces, more than two and a half months ahead of the promised September 11th withdrawal deadline. After 20 years of operations and training missions, it is the biggest signal yet that NATO's time in the country is coming to an end. But concerns are building that as troops leave, jihadist groups are making ground once more.
1: That's FSN's Laura Macon-Isherwood. As COVID-19-related restrictions are lifted across the country, more and more Americans are expected to fill the roads, airports and railway stations this July 4th weekend. That's according to the American Automobile Association. AAA estimates that nearly 48 million people plan to travel between the 1st and the 5th, with about 43.5 million traveling by car. Air travel is expected to be at or near pre-pandemic levels this holiday weekend. Mask requirements are still in place in airports and on board planes. People are warned to arrive at the airport at least an hour and a half before their scheduled flight. India's COVID-19 death toll has officially exceeded 400,000. That puts the country third behind the U.S. and Brazil in a number of COVID-related fatalities. Half of the deaths have occurred in the past two months, as the virulent Delta variant infected hundreds of thousands daily. But as FSN's Ishan Garg reports, Indian health officials are sounding an optimistic note that the worst is over.
3: India has one of the lowest deaths per million among the 10 worst affected nations, according to official data. But experts believe the real death numbers could be at least three times as high. But with the country's daily caseload falling to 46,000 on Friday, as compared to 400,000 cases just two months ago, authorities are hopeful. Even so, Prime Minister Narendra Modi is asking people to not let their guard down and has instructed officials to vaccinate people on a war footing. They hope to inoculate all adults by by the end of the year, which authorities say could downgrade the pandemic to an epidemic. Ishan Garg, New Delhi.
1: The Biden administration on Thursday designated 17 countries as not doing enough to combat human trafficking and warned them of potential U.S. sanctions. The State Department's annual trafficking in persons report also cited the coronavirus pandemic as a cause for a surge in human slavery between 2020 and 2021. Christopher Martinez reports.
4: Although some countries saw improvements in their anti-trafficking work, overall there's been an upsurge in trafficking over the past year. Blinken draws a link between the COVID-19 pandemic and the recent increase.
5: In many places, as governments diverted resources to try to control the pandemic and address its secondary impacts, human traffickers seized the opportunity to grow their operations. People who were pushed into dire economic circumstances by the pandemic became more vulnerable to exploitation. And as more people spend hours online for school and work, traffickers use the Internet to groom and recruit potential victims. It's another reason why it's so important to stop the pandemic as quickly as we can and help communities around the world.
4: The 2021 Trafficking in Persons Report is posted online on the State Department's website. Reporting for Pacifica Radio News KPFA, I'm Christopher
1: Martinez. And I'm Max Pringle. You're listening to Sojourner Truth on Pacifica Radio.
0: And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. It is our weekly roundtable, and our panelists are Laura Carlson, Jackie Goldberg, Dr. Gerald Horn. And we're going to start out with the latest blow to voting rights in the U.S. This, as the nation prepares to mark independence. But there are some of us of African descent, indigenous descent, a lot of brown people who are wondering, well, what does July 4th? And independence really have to do with us. We are still on the long march to freedom. And then on Thursday, July 1st, the US Supreme Court. Uh, gave red states a green light to further suppress voting rights. The nation's top court supported two Arizona voter suppression laws. One prohibited the collection of absentee ballots by anyone other than a relative or caregiver, and the other threw out any ballots cast in the wrong precinct. Well, before I play a clip and and get us started, get this discussion started, let me first welcome our panelists. I'd like to welcome Laura Carlson, Director of the America's Program. She works with Just Associates and International Feminist Organization. She's based in Mexico City, where she's a regular contributor to America's Updater, Foreign Policy and Focus, Counterpunch, and several Spanish-language publications. Laura Carlson is also a television host and commentator on Globalization, the Drug War, Immigration, and Gender Issues for various international news outlets. Laura, welcome. Thank you, Margaret. Margaret. Great to be here. Okay, I'd also like to welcome Jackie Goldberg, Governing Board Member for the Los Angeles School Board District 5. She's a former member of the California State Assembly. Jackie Goldberg had previously served as a member of the Los Angeles City Council before being elected to the council. She served on and was later president of the Los Angeles School Board. Jackie, welcome. Thanks for inviting me and Dr. Gerald Horn, Moore's Professor of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston. He's written more than 30 books. His most recently published book is The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. He's also the author of The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century. Dr. Horn, welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, now, kicking off our discussion here on this latest um, attack on, on voting rights, let us uh, first go to a clip from NBC on the what the Supreme Court did.
5: In a major test of the landmark Voting Rights Act, the court took up two restrictions in Arizona one allowing the state to throw out votes cast in the wrong precinct, and another that said only voters, their family members, or caregivers can turn in a person's mail ballot. Democrats said both made it harder for minorities to vote. But by a vote of six to three, with the court's liberals dissenting, the court upheld the restrictions. Justice Samuel Alito's majority opinion said all voting laws impose some burden. And they don't cross the line, even if they create small disparities in voting, as long as the state has some justification for them. But in a blistering dissent, Justice Elena Kagan said the court ignores that voter discrimination is getting worse. She said the ruling weakens the Voting Rights Act, a law that stands as a monument to America's greatness and protects against its basest impulses. Election law experts say the court now leaves few legal weapons to challenge new voting restrictions recently passed in nearly 20 states. There's really
1: not much left. All of the major tools have been significantly weakened or eliminated.
5: And no word tonight of any retirements. The last nine justices to step down for something other than health reasons announced their plans on or before the court's final day. That suggests Justice Stephen Breyer will probably be around next term.
0: All righty. So there you have it. And the court's decision has essentially killed uh, the law. Um, meaning the Voting Rights Act of 1965, so hard fought for by uh, the civil rights movement, Uh, this law was once praised as the most effective civil rights legislation in U.S. history. And as you heard, the vote was 6-3. to So all that essentially remains now of the Voting Rights Act is the section banning vote dilution in redistricting that's based on race and the ban on intentional discrimination. But a lot of these laws we're seeing around the country are definitely intentionally uh, discriminatory. So we'll see how it goes. But as of June 21st, 2021, 17 states have enacted 28 new laws that restrict access to the vote, according to the Brennan Center for Justice. At least 61 bills with restrictive provisions are moving through 18 state legislatures. And that's on top of uh, voting suppression laws that had already begun to spread across the country since the gutting. Of in 2013 of the Civil Rights Act. So, Laura Carlson, we're going to start with you because a lot of people really can't believe that this is actually happening, feeling that this is really taking the country so far back. But also, the United States is touting itself as the defender of democracy um, in south of the border uh, where you're based and around the world. And... Uh, People are really wondering what can happen now because the courts, in a lot of ways, were seen as the last bastion of uh, the Supreme Court where the Voting Rights Act can be held up. So it seems as though now Congress has to act, but the two bills, voting rights uh, bills in, in Congress, don't seem to be getting anywhere in the U.S. Senate. Laura Carlson. Well that's, well, that's
4: exactly, the, exactly the, dilemma, the dilemma, Margaret. I mean, these I mean, two laws are just classic examples of the kind of racist voter suppression that's going on in the states right now. The Democratic National Committee reports that the first actually, according to their studies, has led to the rejection of twice as many minority votes as uh, as votes of other people. And also the the part of the law that would limit the ballot collection process specifically targets communities of people of color. So there's no doubt about that. What we know now is where the court stands. That's no surprise. Uh, What we don't know is how to move forward against this offensive against voter rights. It's clear that we're losing this battle in the court and in the legislature, and we're supposed to lose much, much more the Supreme Court is, is now clearly in a position to uh, uphold the voter suppression efforts being carried out by the Republican Party in the state legislatures. You mentioned the huge number of states that have already passed these laws and the number of states where they still have these kinds of laws pending. One of the things that's particularly ironic or perhaps outrageous is that uh, there are still in the federal government, you know, Democrats who are not going forward with the only chance to protect voting rights, which are these federal legislation, the For the People Act in particular, which is the broadest and firmest of those proposals, on the basis that it has to be bipartisan. The Brendan Center, Brendan Center for Justice at uh, new york university that you mentioned came out with a study just recently that says that all these laws in the states are the result of republican bulldozing the votes in almost every single state where these laws have passed are completely along party lines there's a com- there's a- there's a complete willingness and strategy use majorities in the state legislatures to run over the Democratic Party and the minorities and pass these kinds of laws. And this is not because it reflects the will of the people. Almost all the polls that we've seen also show that the U.S. people do not want to see voting restrictions, that they believe in voting rights, and they believe that it's an important part of any kind of democracy. So this whole bipartisan excuse that's happening, particularly with Manchin, who's become famous as a result of it, you know, is really just a pretext for the same kind of racist beliefs that are actually behind these laws. Uh, Elena Kagan in the dissent said, what's tragic is that the court has damaged a statute designed to bring about the end of discrimination in voting. And we could go much further than that and say that they not only... You know, damage the statute that would try to end discrimination, but they have, in fact, given the green light to uh, discrimination throughout the country. This is extremely serious, again, because, as you mentioned, the situation in, the, in, in Congress, where without uh, getting rid of the filibuster, there's almost no future For the For the People Act, which would be, again, the broadest in terms of guaranteeing voter rights, or even for the more limited John Lewis Voting Rights Act, um, which some people said had some chance of having Republican support, but probably doesn't, and uh, probably means that, yes, this is being gutted. The big question now is, what kind of a grassroots mobilization would it take to turn back this movement on a national level, and that's the challenge that remains before us.
0: Absolutely, indeed. And Jackie Goldberg, I mean, you had your early training when in university in the anti-war movement, this having to do with the Vietnam War, and of course uh, you were active in, in civil rights and anti-racist movements uh, right in, in Southern California. And you know looking at and and the victory i'm sure you were celebrating along with many of the 1965 uh voting rights act and a a lot of us never you know you you couldn't imagine a time that that would be struck down given uh the the victory and the strength of the civil rights movement At the time. But Jackie Goldberg, putting that together, I mean, and and also, you might want to comment on uh, Laura's question about what will it take, given it seems as though the court, the door of the courts, are now closed uh, to fight for voting rights. But also, this whole business about the big lie uh, that Donald Trump has been running around with, and that in part, it's not the only thing, but in part, it has really fueled uh, uh, this spate of uh, voting. uh, Uh, suppression uh, measures and now nancy pelosi has announced that uh, a house panel will investigate it but one really has to wonder you know what kind of whitewash is going to happen to january 6th because it seems to me as though it is a piece of a whole the insurrection the lie voter suppression etc jackie goldberg
3: well first of all to ever look to the supreme court for anything progressive would mean you have no idea of the history of the u.s supreme court <laughs> uh,
0: i mean right. starting with
3: Plessy versus ferguson separate but equal is certainly equal dred scott says no i don't care where you ever live you're still a slave you're always a slave and by the way no black person can ever become a citizen so why we expect anything from a supreme court is is surprising to me. That's number one. Number two is Mitch O'Connell and the Republican ruling class says, I don't really care if you ever control legislators again as long as we run the courts. And that's why Mitch O'Connell made sure that court packing was his number one job. That's why they prevented a Democratic president from appointing someone. That's why everybody's worried about Breyer hanging on too long. So that's number two but the third thing and the most important thing is is that we weren't given the voting rights act we demanded it and we demanded it by organizing and there's two types of organizing that needs to go on right now the first type of organizing is is that we have to register more people to vote than we've ever registered before because we know that some people will not be able to get the vote this time so you have to have many more new people registered to take their place so there has to be between now and the uh, 2022 elections, there has to be massive organizing on the local level. Everywhere in the country, we need to be organizing new voters and getting ready to help people get to the polls. We need to be identifying what in the laws are the most harmful to which groups and then seek to find solutions around them right now. Not court solutions, but organizing solutions because the courts have been packed and they're gonna continue to be packed And they're going to be blocked by McConnell if he can, even with Democrats in control. So the third thing that we need to do is we need to seriously take a look at legislation, probably not this term but next, about changing the role of the Supreme Court. The U.S. Supreme Court in the Constitution of the United States was never intended to decide anything but disputes between states. That's its function. That's its function. Its function was not to tell Congress what was constitutional or not. That was not its function. That wasn't a function it assumed on its own. And it is time for law to say, okay, here are some things you can decide, and here are some things you cannot decide. They are not your business, because whether or not a state can vote or not vote, and you decide as constitutionally, no, you don't get to decide that. That's not your job. The other thing they could do is they could add the num add to the number of, of uh, folks. So once we have enough Democrats in to appoint them to uh, add the people. Who said it had to be nine? Who said they had to be elected appointed for life? There's nothing in the U.S. Constitution that makes them appointed for life. So there are changes you could make that will at least rein in the reactionary uh, Supreme Court we have. But the short term. And the medium term is all about organizing. It's back in the streets. It's demonstrations in Washington. It's going to everybody's who voted against any of this uh, in their district to do, again, what we did when they tried to kill Obamacare. Uh, we went into their districts. Uh, we, we, it is a time for us to say, all right, here's the challenge. You have declared war. U.S. Supreme Court, you have declared war. 18 state legislators, you have declared war. You've declared war against your own damn constituents, and we are going to organize those constituents to fight against you. Anything short of that is not going to make any difference.
0: Yeah, and uh, Dr. Gerald Horn, I mean, Jackie Goldberg, absolutely right. I mean, the Supreme Court, you're a historian. You could look back in history to see the all of the negative um, rulings they have uh, made, particularly around the issue of uh, race, uh, but not only that. And it seems as though, I mean, on this show, uh, Dr. Horn, we've talked about the first reconstruction after the slavery period, the destruction of the first reconstruction. And many people say that the second reconstruction in the United States was around the civil rights era, including the winning of things like the Voting Rights Act. And now the Poor People's Campaign a National Call for Moral Revival, they've called for a third reconstruction and are pushing for it, are, are hitting the streets, and will be hitting the streets again, I understand, in uh, the next... Week week or so so and and also W.E.B. Du Bois talked about this abolitionist democracy which we have yet to see so Dr. Horn your thoughts and that that whole thread for us with the Uh, attack on voting rights, the Supreme Court decision, the packing uh, of the courts, the big lie that Donald Trump is running around with and the fact that so many people are believing the big lie. And now you have an insurrection, um, people charging the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, which may very well go down in history, be whitewashed when it goes down in history, given the way Congress is handling it right now. Dr. Horn, your thoughts? Well, first of
6: all, I think we need to dispense with the false narrative. That is to say that the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, it's all part of this grand scheme where there is ever expanding democratic rights in the United States, almost inevitably, almost ineluctably. And in that context, what oftentimes dismissed is the fierce resistance. To ever expanding democracy, which we saw in Boston during the Boston crisis of the 1970s, not to mention throughout the South, throughout this whole period up until today. And what we've also lost sight of as a result of the basically accepting this lost uh, written liberal narrative is that it was international pressure that helped to convince the United States to move away from Jim Crow. That is to say, the context of the Cold War, Africa surging to independence, the United States worried about winning hearts and minds and resource-rich Africa when people of color in this country were treated so atrociously. The Supreme Court even mentions that in the epical Brown v. Board of Education decision of 1954. So instead of accepting these false liberal narratives, we need to go back to what is the actual case. And in that context, as a glimmer of... Positivity, I should mention, the United Nations Human Rights Council report uh, issued under the aegis of former Chilean President Michelle Bachelet, which examined the police terror, not only in the United States, but particularly the United States, and came to the conclusion that amongst other remedies, there should be um, more attention to systemic racism and steps towards reparation. It's this kind of international pressure that our organizations and our movements have lost sight of which is one of the reasons why we're in such a deep hole today. Uh, you are correct with regard to all of these efforts being of one piece, that is to say voter suppression, the Supreme Court decisions, the January 6th insurrection. And with regard to the latter, evidence is emerging that these insurrectionists, at least some of them, had weapons stored across the river in Virginia, and they basically planned to take the Capitol and hold it as if this was some sort of 19th century battle. You should also know that with regard to these recent Supreme Court decisions, we should not lose sight of the other decision, which has to deal with whether or not the state of California can ask for information on rich donors donating to certain organizations. This is the evil twin of the Civil Citizens United case. Remember that case of about a decade ago, unleashed a tsunami of campaign donations and cash flooding into the political system, we were told at the time that you could be able to trace this because you could ask for information on who the donors were. The decision yesterday suggests that that's a dead letter, and so we can expect a flood of dark money, that is to say money where we're not even sure where it comes from, to be flooding into these particular elections i'm saluting the department of justice for seeking to bring georgia the state of georgia to court uh, on the premise that they with their recent electoral so-called reform have basically engaged in intentional discrimination but you don't have to be a lawyer to know that it's very difficult to prove intentional discrimination although i wish them well And with regard to the role of the Supreme Court, the Biden administration has invoked a panel that is now studying the role of the Supreme Court, but the problem we face with regard to revamping the role of the Supreme Court is the problem that I mentioned when I began my remarks, which is that there is a Euro-American electoral majority, that is to say Not a majority of the entire electorate, but a majority of Euro-Americans. They voted 75 million plus for Donald J. Trump in November 2020. And in some ways, the base is directing the leaders as opposed to leaders like Mitch McConnell leading the base around by the nose. And so until that formidable problem is addressed, I'm afraid to say that the hole we have dug for ourselves will become ever deeper.
0: Absolutely, Dr. Horn. Uh, very well said. And, and for people out there who think, well, we have arrived, we really don't, as Jackie Goldberg and all three of our panelists have said, uh, hit the streets. Uh, Just consider the fact that, of what Dr. Horn just said, of uh, people who were arming themselves, were planning on on taking the Capitol, marching across the Senate uh, chambers with the Confederate flag, and uh, that insurrection, as far as I'm concerned, continuing with Donald Trump running around the country, uh, you know, talking to his base about the fact that Biden was not really elected— and you have members of Republican members of Congress trying to whitewash the whole thing while at the same time trying to attack our right to vote. so it seems to me as though we all need to be stepping it up a notch and not uh, sitting in our hands and thinking, "Well, if we keep our head in our sand in the sand, things are going to improve. No things could get a lot worse than they are even right now, but um there's always hope because People are always rising up against being oppressed. So we're going to take a station break right now, and then we return, uh, well, charges against the Trump Organization and also the uh, Communist Party in China marking 100 years. Uh, but China has really stepped out on the international front. We'll see what all of this means. Our panelists will weigh in. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
4: Minutes of a day to guide
3: from the bottom of
4: this bit, but my
0: To help us sing these songs of freedom. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. That is the late, great Bob Marley redemption song. It is our weekly roundtable and our panelists are Jackie Goldberg, uh, Laura Carlson, and Dr. Joe Horn. Check out our website at www.sotruradio.org, where we have a community calendar. A lot of other information I handle on Instagram and Twitter at True. Radio, and we're also nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud, and today we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in the state of Florida, and internationally we would like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners throughout the Pacific, uh asian pacific region we do have listeners there this is margaret prescott host of sojourner truth we're now going to turn our attention to the charges against the trump organization and have our panelists weigh in let us go now to a clip from the washington post
7: the chief financial officer of the trump organization he's been that since the 90s he's been an accountant for trump since the 70s he's probably the person who knows trump's finances better than anyone in the world including probably trump From what we understand, talking to people familiar with the case, they have to do with taxes and particularly the taxes that should have been paid, allegedly, on benefits given Trump Organization executives. Things like perhaps apartments or cars, school tuition, free things that uh, Trump Organization executives got as part of their work um, on which taxes were allegedly not paid. Uh,
5: These charges are unprecedented. They are unique. Uh, People across the country, we believe, have heard of corporate apartments, have heard of corporate cars, Uh, all of this is on the books and records of the company. That's how they know about it.
7: The Manhattan district attorney and the New York attorney general have been investigating Trump org for more than two years. Uh, These are the first charges to emerge in that case in the last few months, they seem to have merged. So the charges being brought today are being brought by the Manhattan district attorney, uh, but he has several members of the New York attorney general's staff on his team now. So I think we can see this as sort of a team effort.
5: In 244 years, we have not had a local prosecutor go after a former
7: president of the United States. For Trump, there's not a lot of good news today. His company has been indicted, uh, which may impact its ability to get loans, keep its current loans, deal with here. It's that he himself is not charged and that there may be some indication in the charge against Weisselberg of the strength of the case that prosecutors have against Weisselberg. I think, from the outside, there are some people who look at this and think you can't get Trump, you can't charge Trump or convict him without the help of somebody like Weisselberg who can say, you know, I was in the room when Donald Trump told me to do this, and I said, hey, this is illegal. We can't do it. He said, do it anyway. You would need that kind of testimony to show that Trump broke the law with an understanding of what the law said, which is kind of important (laughs) in financial crimes
0: All righty. So, Laura Carlson, let's start with you. This is big news uh, around the United States and I imagine other parts of the world as well. But a lot of people very doubtful that Trump actually will be held to account. Um, and uh, also the the attempts to get uh, Weiselberg, who's been so close to him, the CFO Alan Weiselberg to turn on Trump. A lot of people are also saying it's very doubtful, and part of the reason for that is they're saying the operation was really like a mob. It was like a, a criminal uh, organization, so you really got to watch out if you're going to uh, turn coat, so to speak. Um, nevertheless, one has to wonder if they're is more that we're going to see or if we uh, have seen the best of that um, in terms of the kinds of charges that could be brought right now against the Trump organization. But Laura Carlson, uh, you want to weigh in on this? And Laura, by My the finger, way, finger. I, I, yeah. I also want to make sure that you get to weigh in on the, uh, the recent vote yet again uh, against Cuba. <laughs> um, so if you... Could use this opportunity to mention that as well.
4: Yeah, sure. Well, I think there is more to come in this case. It's a scheme to defraud in the first degree, which is the charge concealing millions in income through these hidden benefits to, uh, to bring about tax evasion and the other charges falsifying business records. You know, it's interesting that in the statement there's no place where they actually say we did nothing wrong, although Weiselberg has pleaded not guilty. And that seems to be telling in terms of a defense that's not going to be um, we're innocent, but rather, well, we did do all this stuff, but, but, uh, but we can get away with it, essentially. Now, there's no charges against Trump yet, but they did report that he signed some of those checks that are under scrutiny and part of the charges. And we also know that earlier in the year he was ordered to hand over his tax and financial documents to the prosecutors. So I think there could very well be more to come, whether this actually reaches a sentencing or a verdict is another question, and it's a proof of whether there's impunity in the United States. That brings in the international part of it, because, of course, Joe Biden and the U.S. government, as it has in the past, is going all over the world, but particularly it's been down here in this region, in Central America, in Mexico, with this new anti-corruption campaign, when the rest of the world is looking at what's happening in the United States, the power of the wealthy to get away with almost anything, and uh, certainly at the very least questioning any moral authority of the United States government to launch anti-corruption campaigns in countries in the Global South. One of the big problems with this case is that part of what they're arguing is that what they did is just standard corporate practice. And in that sense, they're right. They're very generalized practices of tax evasion that have been allowed to exist and that it is, excuse me, legalized under rule changes that have contributed to these scandalous levels of inequality that we see. Then finally, just on that point, I mean, with Trump going around saying this is not justice, this is politics, he's setting this precedent for when there's enforcement of the laws simply claim to his followers that it's a political vendetta and that they should, um, even despite having no legal leg to stand on, that they should respond to it with a political frenzy in, de- in his defense, which is an erosion of institutions and very dangerous. On the vote in Cuba, once again for the 29th year in a row, we had 184 countries of the 193 in the United Nations voting um, to condemn the embargo against Cuba, and we had two countries that defended it, the United States and Israel. It was a huge disappointment because Biden promised to undo some of the over 200 measures of the Trump administration to strangle the island and its people, and instead he voted again for this and also because when he was vice president in 2016, Obama actually did abstain in the midst of an opening. So we're seeing a more conservative, a more hardline foreign policy of Biden against Cuba at a time when the pandemic is, is literally killing people. On the island, they're developing their own vaccinations, so they're a little better off. But the cruelty of these kinds of measures that seek to coerce third countries, into also contributing to the strangulation where they can't get basic medicines, where they can't get life-saving equipment on the island, has been particularly stark in this case, caused outrage, and yet the policies continue at the expense at a huge human cost on the island. So we're looking to see, again, unfortunately, a harder line Policy from the Biden administration, but we're also seeing a lot of grassroots mobilization in the United States and elsewhere and elsewhere to say this has to end.
0: Right. Well, thank you for that, Laura Carlson, because we're getting very little news on the mainstream media about about all of this. But um, now back to the the charges against the Trump organization, Jackie Goldberg, Uh, you know, at least uh, NBC News is saying that the indictments are suggesting that uh, Weiselberg isn't ready to flip on Trump. But then they have in parentheses yet um, personally, I would be shocked if he does, but, you know, I could be wrong. But your thoughts on the implications of all of this, because this is the Manhattan uh, DA's office that's been carrying out this investigation alongside the New York Attorney General's office. Jackie Goldberg.
3: Well, I think the question is, is are the charges against uh, Weiselberg sufficient to make him really worry about his own future and not about Trump's future? And probably not. Probably not. Uh, although, you know, you never know what people will do when they're actually facing prison time. They would not have brought the charges against Weiselberg if they didn't have a really solid case. One of the problems of going after Trump is is that Trump has been paranoid his whole life. So he takes no notes. If he takes notes, he throws them away and rips them up. He doesn't use email if he can help it because he doesn't want any tra- any evidence that can indicate his involvement in anything. So this is a man who has known that he has been doing illegal things for so long that he lives his life in a way to prevent him from being prosecuted. Having said that, however, if they in fact really do provide sanctions against the uh, uh, Trump organization, which was indicted, not just Weisselberg, then you begin to see some problems for Trump in terms of the, the, what is it, something like $330 million debt he has to Deutsche Bank. That's one of the problems that he has. uh, Deutsche Bank also is not all off the hook yet, because the big investigations that are going on about Trump himself personally are about the Trump policy of how they evaluated their properties being less valuable when I have to pay taxes and more valuable when I need to use them as a uh, basis of getting a loan. I think that investigation with the, uh, with the um, uh, grand jury is still going on, and I think the Deutsche Bank has some real problems that it will not defend Trump over, because uh, it does not need to have any more problems than it's already having with Trump, which is the $330 million debt. Finally, I think it's important to say that I think that while this might give Trump a short-term little boost with his base, who already believes that he's never, Trump has never done anything wrong in his entire life and has only been prosecuted for things that, because we're all jealous of him, um, you know, I think that that is actually uh, not going to last very long. And the reason I don't think it's going to last very long is because I think a trial, which I do think will happen, I think a trial will bring out information that will make it much harder for him to argue that somehow or another uh, that uh, 15 years of illegal activity in terms of taxes should be ignored. So I think that this is a blow. I think it's a blow, because really what Trump sells is Trump, the name Trump. And once Trump name becomes associated with crimes and criminal activity, uh, it does Devalue it, and the only thing that Trump has ever worried about that we can see for sure is the valuation of his name, and that is has been a blow. Right now, it's already a blow.
0: Right, and and Dr. Gerald Horn, your take on all of this, because it, it also seems as though we have to wait and see if the GOP leadership they're going to continue. Uh, to give their strong support for Trump. It does seem as though if this begins to negatively impact Trump, uh, we'll see what they're going to do about it. Uh, you know, McConnell, after that whole insurrection period, you might recall, uh, and the, you know, the failure uh, to really hold Trump to account for that. And Mitch McConnell said in his speech, well, you know, uh, the Trump can be held to account— or hasn't been held to account yet. I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but kind of implying there may be something down the road. Now, that may not be worth a, a hill of beans, but we'll have to see how it goes because this is really these um, the New York General's office and Manhattan DA's office going after a mob operation and a huge mob operation, Dr. Gerald Horn.
6: Well, with regard to Mitch McConnell and the GOP leadership turning against Mr. Trump, I would not necessarily bet on that, as I suggested. I think that the base is directing the leaders rather than vice versa. That's one of the reasons why Liz Cheney, the congresswoman from Wyoming, who has been so adamant in her critique of January 6th and Mr. Trump, probably will not win re-election in November 2022 in the most conservative Approach Trump's state of the all. Uh, on the other hand, I do think that there is reason to feel that Mr. Trump, at least legally, is not out of the woods yet. The grand jury which delivered his chief financial officer, Alan Wesselberg, to lower Manhattan in a courthouse in handcuffs, is still in town. Uh, they could still come up with other charges before it is not impaneled, which will take place a few months from now. Not to mention what you've already suggested, a parallel investigation by the New York State Attorney General, uh, Letitia James. And we also need to await whatever evidence, the January 6th panel that now has been invoked by Nancy Pelosi, what evidence will emerge from there concerning Trump's ties to this insurrection, which could basically be called an attempted coup d'etat. So I think Mr. Trump, uh, would be well advised to hire a few more lawyers. <laughs> right and and Dr.
0: Horn we're actually going to go into our international uh front Um, next so and uh, if we hopefully we'll have time also for you to comment on these holidays in Canada and uh, the 4th of July Uh, maybe we can do that quickly and then we'll wrap our show up with the discussion of the China's Communist Party turning 100 dr. Horn
6: well yesterday was Canada Day and appropriately enough it was marked by indigenous resistance indigenous mass protests, toppling of statues throughout the land, and not necessarily connected to it, but it should be mentioned, the torching of Catholic churches in Canada, since the Catholic Church has been accused credibly of being responsible for the unexplained deaths of so many Native Americans that are now turning up with regard to these unmarked graves. Clearly, what you're having in Canada is a reckoning with regards to settler colonialism, and I'm afraid to say that, given the national chauvinism that is embedded in the July 4th holiday and this idea that the revolt against British rule in the United States was as strictly for for humanity, it's difficult to see such a reckoning taking place anytime soon in this country. In fact, as we've discussed on these airwaves, the uh, the attack on so-called critical race theory. Is basically an attack on the effort to have a more critical examination of United States history, particularly the role of slavery. But I'm afraid to say that the uh, heart is out of the barn. Uh, We see that not only did Nicole Hannah-Jones, the 1619 Project Architect from the New York Times, not only after mass protests in Chapel Hill, she received tenure at the University of North Carolina over the strident objection of the right wing, but also, interestingly enough, there was very active and energetic and raucous student protest, which helped to vouchsafe that decision. But it's not only Nicole Hannah-Jones, uh, one of the most prestigious uh, intellectuals in black America, Tyler Stovall published this book, White, uh, uh, White Freedom, which basically lances and critiques the supposed victories of the Enlightenment of 1776, just as we've mentioned Raoul Peck, the Haitian filmmaker, and has exterminated all the brutes which also denounces settler colonialism. So there is a basic schism in terms of the understanding of what 1776, July 4th, meant. And increasingly, you have this runaway train amongst black intellectuals, which is saying, hold on, wait a minute, this was not a great leap for for the indigenous and the Africans. And then you have others on the other side still trying to maintain the old-time religion. Right, thank you for that, Dr.
0: Horn. And as promised, we're going to now turn to China, China's Communist Party. On Thursday, July 1st, China celebrated the 100th anniversary of the Communist Party of China, which has ruled since the country's 1949 revolution. It is known as the CPC in China. It was founded on July 1st, uh, uh, 1921 in Shanghai. The CPC grew quickly during the Japanese Japanese occupation of China of the 1930s and 40s. By 1949, the CPC pushed the the nationalist government at the time from mainland China to Taiwan, and thus some of the tensions that you see between mainland China and Taiwan today, this after the Chinese Civil War. This led to the establishment of the People's Republic of China on October 1st, 1949, and today the CPC controls the China's armed forces, the People's Liberation Army, one of the largest militaries of the world, and on Thursday, during a massive event Celebrating um, the 100 years of the CPC, Chinese President Xi uh, Xi delivered a defiant speech against foreign interference and in favor of Chinese development. He said, quote, no one should underestimate the resolve, the will and the ability of the Chinese people to defend their natural sovereignty and territorial integrity. Uh, Let's go to a clip now um, from NBC about this.
2: July 2021 commemorates a century of the official founding of the Chinese Communist Party. In these hundred years, China's economy has monumentally transformed. The party had a goal set that by the time we reach 100 years old, we're going to alleviate poverty in China. And more than eight. 100 million people have been lifted out of poverty since China began to open and reform its economy in 1978. But the journey to where it is today wasn't without controversy and failed policies. So how did China grow into the world's second biggest economy? And what's next for the nation's sole governing party? To help bring the party's 100-year history to life, I called up CNBC's China correspondent Evelyn Chang in Beijing. Thank you for joining in. There's really no one better to have this discussion with. Glad to be here. Hope I can be of some help. Now I know like 100 years is a long time. So because we're CNBC and we cover business news and in the interest of time, let's focus on the economic story today. Sounds good. While the People's Republic of China was founded in 1949, the Chinese Communist Party was created 28 years before that, in 1921. There was a whole upheaval globally, and so Chinese young people at that time were very heavily influenced by Marxist thinking, by kind of workers' movement. In 1945, Mao Zedong emerged as the leader of the party. After defeating the Kuomintang in the Chinese Civil War, the People's Republic of China was established in October 1949. In the early years, Mao launched various socio-political and economic campaigns, notably the Great Leap Forward in 1958 and the Cultural Revolution in 1966, which devastated China's economy. You had efforts to implement local industrialization through the Great Leap Forward. That involved villages, setting up furnaces in their backyards, and having a very localized production. But with things like machinery, I think that ran into a lot of problems, which was you know, famine, and reportedly tens of millions of people died because of that.
0: Okay, so uh, Laura Carlson, we're, we're going to try to uh, fit everyone in here if we can. We definitely do want to hear from Dr. Gerald Horn, who has studied China so much. But uh, Laura Carlson, uh, just some quick thoughts from you now on the significance of this anniversary and the role China is playing around the world, Laura. Well,
4: there, it's certainly been a dramatic history from founding on the Shanghai boat and over the last hundred years Um, one of the things that's significant that they've noted in the anniversary is the role or the lack of a role for women there were fewer than ten percent in the last National Congress and not a single one in the Politburo Standing Committee which is the maximum organ of of governance the quotas aren't being met it's a rigid patriarchal old-school system in the midst of rapid economic and geopolitical change And then we see, especially now with this new Cold War brewing, that what's shaping up is uh, this very strong party, authoritarian, um, you know, amid changes. And from a feminist perspective, it means that what we're looking at is this patriarchal authoritarian system in China coming up against, with increasing frictions, this capitalist patriarchal system in the United States, and that this right. new Cold War then could mean violence for the rest of us.
0: Absolutely, and, and Dr. Horn
6: we will go to you next. Well, what's remarkable about July 1st, the centenary of the Chinese Communist Party, is that neither the detractors of the Communist Party nor President Xi Jinping himself mentioned the key to how and why it is that China is now a juggernaut in the passing lane, about to leave U.S. imperialism sprawling in the dust, and that is, of course, the early 1970s anti-Soviet entente with Washington, which helped to unleash a tidal wave of foreign direct investment. And with the U.S. working class and labor movement weakened and debilitated by the Red Scare and the Cold War, they were hardly able to object as jobs flooded across the Pacific, uh, to China. And then oftentimes lost sight of is what China did in the late 1980s, early 1990s, when it sided with US imperialism once again during the Japanic. Recall that there was all this hysteria about Japan leaving the United States so far behind. Uh, China, of course, weighed in and had, in a sense, reason to do so given the depredations committed by Tokyo during the Pacific War in the early 1940s, but in any case, that too helped to win China plaudits in Washington. But now I think it's fair to say that this deal with China, the nixon Kissinger deal, instead of being seen as a stroke of genius, might be seen in retrospect as one of the most disastrous, disastrous, catastrophic geostrategic decisions in the history of the world.
0: Oh my! On that note, we're going to have to leave it there. Another fascinating roundtable. I'd like to uh, thank Keanu Williams, our audio engineer, assistant producer Romero Funes, and y'all. Please stay safe. Bye bye, bye bye, bye bye.